Hey, listeners, before we get started, if you're enjoying these episodes, you can actually check them out on YouTube in full video. You can just search Honest Ecommerce and you'll get pulled right to our channel. Make sure you subscribe and ring the bell for all the updates. Getting products into customers' hands, even if you have to give it away, is absolutely critical to kind of growing, growing a product business. Welcome to Honest Ecommerce, a podcast dedicated to cutting through the BS and finding actionable advice for online store owners. I'm your host, Chase Clymer, and I believe running a direct-to-consumer brand does not have to be complicated or a guessing game. On this podcast, we interview founders and experts who are putting in the work and creating real results. I also share my own insights from running our top Shopify consultancy, Electric Eye. We cut the fluff in favor of facts to help you grow your e-commerce business. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Honest Ecommerce. I'm your host, Chase Clymer. And today, we're welcoming to the show a fantastic guest. For the past 8 years, Matthew Burke has been slanging coffee beans on the internet, subscriptions, and gifts. So we're going to dive into all of that. How are you doing today, Matthew? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So as I as I just said, you've been doing coffee on the internet uh, for quite some time. You might be one of even one of the four in the forefront of that. So tell me how you kind of conceptualized Beanbox and where you got started way back when. Yeah. Um, so rolling back eight years ago, uh, I'll just say up front, my background is in software and writing software and being a CTO and developing products. Um, I am nowhere near a coffee expert. Uh, I think I've become a coffee aficionado. But we started the business uh, out of a failed startup. And that startup was about person-to-person recommendations. And it just wasn't growing fast enough. And we thought, all right, we, we need to pivot really quickly. And we looked at our data. And we saw all the things you'd expect. People exchanging recommendations around where to eat, or books to read, or movies to watch, or products to buy. And there was this weird little peak around coffee. Coffee brands, coffee equipment, types of coffee. And we thought, coffee? What are you talking about? Like we drink coffee all the time. Whenever we talk to a, a potential user, we want to do a user interview, we treat them to coffee. And we thought like, oh, well, maybe there's something here. And we're kind of in Seattle and we're sort of surrounded by this coffee culture. And the more we looked into it, the more we realized that we kind of were coffee lovers. We just didn't know it. Uh, we would go to the local Starbucks and get whatever they gave us. And at the time we were working in a tiny little office in a little neighborhood and they had a roaster with a cafe and the coffee was just different there. It was, it was great. And so we realized we were sort of surrounded by this coffee culture and that there was a really great appetite for folks having better coffee, ever better coffee. Eight years later, that's more true than, than it certainly was then. And so we said, you know what? Let's pivot our business. We're good at building product. We're good at building software. Um, there's something here around coffee. And uh, what we learned is that there's this big appetite to have better coffee, not just in the cafe, but at home. And so we built a business around that. Our products are around helping people taste and experience better coffees at home. And we started building kind of an e-commerce platform. We uh, built the bulk of it for what it was back then in a weekend. And we launched it. And out of nowhere, we had people buying coffee. And the amazing thing is when we went to our coffee roasting partners and told them what we were doing, they said, uh, yeah, 
you guys, don't you know that you, you can't sell coffee online? You can sell coffee in a cafe, in a supermarket, but no one's going to buy it. And eight years later, um, that pivoted business is uh, going really strong. And as I said, the people now more than ever, after spending two years kind of hold up at home, they want to have better coffee experience at ho- experiences at home. And our products are are built built to do that. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting that you kind of built this on the back of a failed startup. Uh, was that kind of pivot? Um, as you were talking about that, it made me think of the lean startup. Are you a fan of kind of that mentality in that in that book? Yes, yes, ab- absolutely. We, you know, we're big fans of uh, time boxing, effort boxing, thin slicing, uh, getting data really quickly, uh, error by action as opposed to inaction. And so, I, I think we have a culture around like just try it, just get it done, just get it out there, because at a minimum, you're going to learn, even if it's not perfect. And we, we've always tried to operate that way. Absolutely. I think that uh, just analysis paralysis and just being indecisive is probably more detrimental to most entrepreneurial journeys than just making the wrong choice. Yeah. And you know, sometimes you'll make the wrong choice, but you're going to learn. You're really going to learn from it. Um, so we, we have a great example. And maybe this is getting kind of too deep too quickly. But uh, a year and a half ago... Um, we were so we have these seasonal peaks for holidays because people love buying coffee as a gift and the calendar kind of pushed us past the time when we'd be able to ship products to people for a gift and so we said well you know people should just be able to buy a gift and the recipient instead of getting the gift in the mail they get a it's an e-gift right and lots of platforms have this and but it was kind of new to us and so we said, well, we, we have three days left before the holiday. Let's kind of hack something together real quick and put it out there and see if anybody actually uses it. And out of nowhere, we, we kind of said, these are the minimum requirements. We had it up very, very quickly. And sure enough, over those three days, like 20% of all of our sales went to those e-gifts. And the implementation, like we didn't have the right emails going out. It wasn't really connected to the core of our platform, but we filled in those blanks over time. And now people buying e-gifts is just a standard part of, of what we do. But it's that, you, you know, you have to try. And even if you get it wrong or it's not complete, you will learn. And that'll tell you, should you keep a feature on? Should you invest more in it? And uh, we just keep doing that over and over and over again. Oh, absolutely. So you, uh, I know you danced through some part of that 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 story. So I really want to drill down. And so you identified like you think there's a market here from failed startup, and then you guys go all in on let's sell coffee on the internet, and you build an MVP over uh, you know a hackathon over a weekend, right? From there to actually selling things, is, is there something going on there? So how did you guys find those first initial customers? And then I'll just immediately with the second follow up. Question would be: Do you think you could still do that same strategy today? Oh, one one hundred percent. I think that strategy is always open, um, and we erred more towards like let's think about e-commerce for a sec for a second. There are really two products that you have to think about. One is the digital product, which is how you sell and how that feels to a customer. What's their experience? What's their journey? And the second is the product that you deliver to them. And we've actually always erred on the side of we have a much better product than sort of a digital experience 
I think the digital experience is catching up. But when you do e-commerce, like those are the two things that you're concerned with. What's the user experience on your site? Kind of first experience through to conversion, through to account management. That's kind of bundle A. And then bundle B is we've got a coffee product and that's a physical product. And how do we ship that? And how does it arrive? And how do you open the box and what's in the box and all that stuff? I I think for us to kind of jumpstart it, there were there were two things that really helped. Uh, number one, we sent free product everywhere we could. So we sent it to journalists that we knew. We sent it to friends. We sent it to people we knew on the East Coast who were like, oh, Seattle Coffee is special. Um, and so we seeded a very small portion of the market with our physical product. And that, I think, really, really helped. I think the second thing that helped is uh, we turned it on in September. That was our first shipment ever. And by the time we got to December, we were in a gifting season. And so we went from about 80 products shipped in September to, I think it was about 800 in December. And so we timed the launch with a sort of natural buying period. So those, those two things, I think, helped kickstart it. Again, no, number one is getting product in people's hands. And we got tons of feedback from that. And people started to be aware, word of mouth, and that helped. And then the second is... Um, we timed it coincident with a gifting season where we knew there would be demand for gifts and we could step in and, and kind of help jump jumpstart the business that way. Absolutely. And I, I fully agree. I think product seeding is a fantastic strategy that I don't think will ever not work. I don't think that, that one will ever go away. Yeah. You know, just to add to that, um, I, I know tons of folks who are kind of just starting their entrepreneurial career. And it's not a question of like analysis paralysis, but they're so well-intentioned around having a great product that often, you know, like they have the sort of core of their product, let's say it's a food product. And rather than take the core of that and forget about the packaging, the branding, the labels, how you describe it, where you sell it, how you sell they just need to get that product in people's hands. And, give you and I think many entrepreneurs, they kind of forget that and they focus in and what's the perfect packaging and how are we going to distribute and what's the right amount and um, you can really get lost in that. And we've, as we've developed new products, we've always said, like, let's just get this out into people's hands and they're going to tell us whether or not it works, uh, whether or not they want it, whether there's sort of an appetite there. But getting products into customers' hands, even if you have to give it away, is absolutely critical to kind of growing, growing a product business. You, you are 100% correct. And like, obviously, when you launch your product, you want it to be great, but like when you're in that phase where you're honestly just trying to find product market fit and find things to improve, like that's the time where you can kind of put a not half-assed effort, but like it, it doesn't have to be fully fleshed out. It's just like you just need to get feedback because you're so close to it that you can't really see what's going on anymore, and you need that outside opinion. And it can't be your mom yes. or your dad or your girlfriend or your brother. It's got to be right. a stranger. Yes, and and I think two areas where it's very easy to get lost are. Packaging and branding. Yeah. Um, if the core of your product experience is what people want, they'll tell you. And even if it comes in, even if you have to hand it to them, it can come in the worst possible packaging. And you can just develop that over time. The same thing with your branding. You can develop that over time. You know, brand is as brand does. And it takes a long time to figure out what that is. Um, but it's easy to get lost in in that work. And thankfully, um, we just, as I said, like we erred on the side of like, we've got a product, like let's get it out there really quickly. And 
we'll figure it out afterwards. Absolutely. So within kind of your your interview questionnaire that most guests fill out for those that want to know like the secret behind the sauce here, uh, you mentioned a phrase that I actually had not heard before. So I, I want to understand this. You mentioned that uh, you could kind of discuss how to avoid price spir- spiraling. What What is that? Because I'm not aware of that term, but I think it'd be a fun conversation. Yeah. So um, I mean, this happens in the life of every startup where they have they have a product and maybe they have... Maybe they don't know who their competitors are, or it takes a while before they have enough penetration for, to see competitors in the market. And what happens very quickly is that you start doing point-by-point point comparisons. And those very quickly go from the difficult stuff, this is where they source their coffee, or this is how they package their coffee, or all of the hard stuff. It goes very quickly to like, oh, well, they're offering it for $8.99, and we're, ours is $22.99. And so how can we expect to convert someone if our our price is higher? So let's drop our price to match theirs. And sure enough, they're watching you and like they're like, oh, you know what? Well, maybe for a first for a first box on a subscription, we're going to drop our price, too. And um, there's kind of a there's a temptation to I call it price spiraling, but it's essentially looking at your competitors and trying to play a who can sell for a lower price game as a key to either upping volume, upping conversion, and or both. And so one thing that was very, very hard for us when you're young and you're growing as a company, you just want volume. And you like time is very expensive and very risky. And so I think the temptation is to drop your prices so that you get more. And I'm not saying that one-off sales and you know, customized offers and discounts. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever do those. We do those all the time. But the core of your product has to sustain its value over time. Value is not the same thing as price. And so we, it took a long time to learn this lesson that um, where we need to focus is telling people what the value is and communicating that and proving it in the product. And if you do that, then you will feel comfortable coming to the market and having a higher price because it's justified. And, you know, we've spoken to so many people and they're like, well, look, you can go to so-and-so coffee club and they're going to be less expensive. And why would they go to you? And you say, okay, well, number one, we have free shipping. We don't tack that on. Number two, uh, you get 10% back or 5% to 10% depending upon what you buy in beanbox credits that you can use elsewhere. Um, You know, there are like all of these benefits and they're about half a dozen other ones. And if you hew to those benefits, then you don't have to play a price game. But the moment you play a price game, what you really do is you kind of drop the floor of the market. Um, We never imagined this, but there have been times when we've upped the price as a test just of price elasticity. And as we increase the price, we actually get more demand because people see the value and they associate that with your brand. So, you know, if you're if your product is a commodity product, then you can play the price game and that's just a question of like can you afford to play it? But if you are selling a premium product, the last thing you want to do is undercut your own value by selling it for as cheap as possible just to get volume. There are other ways to get more volume that don't undercut the value of what you do. So, I mean, it's a very it's a very complicated topic, but um, we've tried to avoid playing competitive pricing games because, you know, our coffee is different. The way we handle it is different. The presentation is different. The benefits that accrue, they're all 
different from our competitors. And so um, we want to play the game of proving our value to a customer with every shipment, as opposed to saying, you know what, we're the cheapest. And if we wanted to be the cheapest, we wouldn't be selling online. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be sourcing coffee from 50 different roasters. We, we might be a roaster and bring in tons of coffee and then sell it at a grocery store. We don't want to be cheapest. We want to be highest value and best experience. And, um, in order to do that, if you start playing the pricing game, it under it undercuts your brand and who you are. You just shared so much gold there, and I want to double down on like uh, just any entrepreneur out there that is. There's something where you kind of get caught up in looking at your competition. Just stop. You don't know their yeah. margins. You don't know their finances. You don't know if they're bootstrapped like you might be, or if they've got you know a backer that is willing to spend yes. money to acquire customers at a loss. Uh, you don't understand, you know, their goals in business. You know, there's so much, and then like their, their product is different. Their target demo is probably different. Like, there's so much that's different between you and your competitor. So, getting caught up in playing that comparison game, honestly, is just a net loss. Like, it's just not even worth your time. Yeah, I think you you put it very very well. Which is, um, you know, like we we have competitors where they've raised a ton of venture. And they're going to drop the, drop the price in exchange for volume. And they're going to keep doing that all day, every day. And it's not going to hurt them. And they're going to spend tons of money on marketing. And you know they have an agency and everything is slick and well-produced. And we don't want to compete with that. We want to have the best product and service that we can provide. And if we don't get a customer because they're going to them for price reasons, maybe they're not our best customer. And over time... Uh, we think those customers will come back to us because of what we do provide. But you're totally right. Don't get lost in your perception of a of a competitor because you don't know what's driving the behavior there. It could just be that they have a ton of capital and they need to spend it. Could be a bad. They could be making bad decisions, and you don't want to emulate that activity. Yes, ex that's exactly right. If you're struggling with scaling your sales, maybe Electric Eye can help. Our team has helped our clients generate millions of dollars in additional revenue through our unique brand scaling framework. You can learn more about our agency at electriceye.io. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Y-E.io. Mesa is the expansion pack for your Shopify store to level up your brand. By turning all your apps into your business epicenter, Mesa can help lighten your workload and tame the day-to-day -day chaos of running your store. Join successful brands like Mudwater, Chubby's, and Golden to learn how to use clever workflows to get more done without more overhead. Whether you need to order details in Google Sheets, products added on Etsy, or customer information updated in your CRM, Mesa connects your data where it's needed most. To put it quite simply, Mesa is a better way to work. Browse pre-made templates for Shopify's most popular apps to get your first automation up and running in minutes. Search Mesa, that's M-E-S-A, in the Shopify App Store and download the app today. Is your store holiday ready? Now is the time to make sure you and your team are prepared for the busy season ahead. Gorgeous, an omni-channel help desk built for e-commerce has machine learning functionality that takes the pressure off small support teams and gives them the tools to manage a large number of inquiries at scale, especially during the holiday season. Gorgeous combines all your different communication channels like email, SMS, social media, live chat, and even phone into one platform and gives you an organized view of all your customer inquiries. Their powerful functionality can save your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Merchants can close tickets faster than ever with the help of pre-written responses integrated with customer data to increase the overall efficiency 
of customer support. Their built-in automations also free up time for support agents to give better answers to complex product-related questions, providing next-level support, which helps increase sales, brand loyalty, and recognition. Eric Bandholtz, the founder of Beard Brand, says, We're a seven-figure business, and we have essentially one person on customer support and experience. It's impossible to do it without tools such as Gorgeous to help us innovate. Learn how to level up your customer support by speaking to their team. Visit gorgeous.grsm.io slash honest. Mention this podcast when you sign up to get two months free. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S dot G-R-S-M dot I-O slash H-O-N-E-S-T. Our partner Rewind can protect your e-commerce store by automatically backing up your business critical data. Rewind should be the first app you install to protect your store against human error, misbehaving apps, or collaborators gone bad. It's like having your very own magic undo button. Trusted by over 100,000 businesses, from side hustles to the biggest online retailers like Nix, Paul Mitchell, and Pampers. Best of all, visit rewind.com slash honest e-commerce to get your first month absolutely free. That's rewind.com slash honest e-commerce. Getting an online business off the ground isn't easy. So if you find yourself working late, tackling a to-do list that's a mile long with your fifth cup of coffee by your side, remember, great email doesn't have to be complicated. That's what Klaviyo is for. It's the email and SMS platform built to help e-commerce brands earn more money by creating genuine customer relationships. Once you set up your free Klaviyo account, you can start sending beautiful branded messages in minutes thanks to drag and drop design templates and built-in guidance. And with e-commerce specific recommendations and insights, you can keep growing your business as you go. Get started with a free account at klaviyo.com slash honest. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash H-O-N-E-S-T. Talking about fundraising and, and capital and, and bootstrapping, I know that you've got some opinions on that. So what, what can you share with our listeners around that? Yeah, you know, um, we, we haven't really taken any venture. So eight years in, uh, we've raised a total of about $6 million. That's all from kind of local angels, people that we know, and so we've been very conservative on, on fundraising. And we've done that mostly because um, one of the ratios we look at in terms of the, like the long-term health of our business is the capital raised to revenue generated uh, ratio. And so for us, that's just shy of 5x. And what that means is that on that six or so million that we've raised over eight years, we've generated over 30 million in revenue. And so that, in our opinion, is pretty capital efficient. There are companies where you know they might do a fifteen million dollar raise, uh, but the amount of revenue generated out of that is not that much more. And so we think about like what's your long term capital efficiency. I think the the other area where we've focused is um, trying to stay pretty lean. And um, for probably our first seven years, we were very lean on people. And it wasn't until the past year that we started to invest very heavily in people who had, um, I call it, they had seen the movie. And so people who had been in similar businesses, had scaled those businesses, knew what they were looking at. Uh, and it wasn't really until the past year that we invested really heavily in people. And that's kind of rocket fuel for a business. Um, once you get to a place where you can start to afford those people, um, they can really be force multipliers in your business, but it, it just it can take a long time to get there. And before you get there, your best bet is bring in people who are really smart, who will just figure stuff out 
Um, but over over time, as your business enters a new life cycle, you can start to bring in people who they'll look at a problem that maybe you've had for five years and they'll say, this isn't a problem. This hasn't even started to become a problem. Have you done this thing and this thing? And you say, well, what are, what are those things? And they'll say, oh, well, it's really easy. We'll do this. And now it's no longer a problem. Now your problem has moved to something bigger and more valuable. Um, so investing is in people is like, it's very expensive, but um, it's kind of the best investment. One of the best investments you can make for your business. I know that there's some listeners out there that would yell at me if I didn't ask this specific question, which is, you are good at you know this this capital multiplier, the efficiency that you're talking about. And so I know some people out there are just like, well, if they're that good, like why aren't you taking a ten million dollar to make it a fifty million dollar business and just to sell it? Like why aren't you doing that? that? I mean, that's a that's a that's a good question and really difficult one. You know, it's kind of like as an entrepreneur, you have to ask the question: What is the what's the cost of capital? Right. So how much does that cost your business, and how much does it cost you personally? in terms of either ownership or control. And so we've always looked at it as more of less of an ownership issue and more of a control issue, which is, uh, and we've been, we've been through this too. And it's very painful. Um, sometimes when you bring in capital and capital ceases to be a constraint, you don't make the best decisions. And you might, for example, change the way you operate and say, oh, we look, we took 15 million and we're going to grow our top line and everything else doesn't matter. Or, you know, if you start your business that way and you have a lot of capital early, capital makes problems go away, but they come back. So I know tons of folks who are in businesses where their margin, you know, might be 15% margin. They take a ton of capital. They're like, why would I worry about margin right now? I'm just trying to capture the market. I'm trying to cement my position in the market with the right fit. And I'm worried about product and growing my customer base and um, all of that stuff, which is great. But at some point, their P&L and their cash flow is going to look at that margin and say, like, 15% is not sustainable. Um, you know, you need to be at like 40% or, or more, which is hard to do in e-commerce, hard to do with shipping. Um, and so because capital will remove that problem from the consideration set, you will grow your business around a different assumption of where the big problems are. And so we've had years where we've been incredibly lean, where we said, look, the only way we're going to get through the year is if we focus relentlessly on margin. And so we've come out of that a stronger business. And, and so I, I think we've been reluctant to take big chunks of capital so far um, because they make these really difficult and very important problems temporarily disappear, but they, they will come roaring back if you, if you want to keep going and going and going. Yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned something about like money makes problems go away, but not necessarily uh, at the right time. Like I had a friend of mine who, who basically said his startup failed because they mm -hmm. took money and they were throwing money at problems instead of being creative and just solving the problem. That, that's, a great, that's a great way to put it. Um, I, I just look at it this way. It's like when you're in a business... Whether you're taking venture or not, whether you have a ton of money or not, whether or not you have a big, a great product market fit or you're still working to create that or discover it. Um, I look at it as like your business as an entrepreneur is to move the problems around. And what will happen when you solve one is another one will rear its head. And we, because we're, you know, we're manufacturers 
And when you start to scale manufacturing, what, what you find is that you solve this problem, but it moves it over here. Or you solve the problem on the input, but it creates a problem on the output. And so like your job as an entrepreneur is to prioritize those problems and know that when you solve one, it's going to turn into a different one. But when you inject capital, I think the real danger is the really important problems, they cease to be on your radar and you go and focus on, you know, I've been in lots of startups. You, your job is to spend that money and increase the valuation and make sure you get to the next round. Um, and that work is not always the same as improving your manufacturing or lowering your shipping costs or bettering your margin or going deeper on customer repurchase rates or, uh, you know, juicing your lifetime value. Those are really, really hard things to solve. Um, and money, money doesn't solve them at all, to your point. Absolutely. Uh, so I got a similar question. And maybe this is kind of an assumption on my end. It, it's like, there's also the whole thing that like, you don't have to make that choice. You don't have to grow. You own the business. And if you like the size yes. you are and your growth rate that you're at, like that's perfectly fine. You know, like taking on more capital means you have to grow. And as a founder or a CEO or whatever, all of that stress is now on your shoulders. And, you know, there is such thing as a lifestyle business or being good enough and, you know, you can focus on other things. Yeah. But, you know, we, we've, we've learned painfully that like, not acting like a venture funding funded business, it doesn't mean that you're a lifestyle business, which is usually kind of deployed in the pejorative. I, yeah, I right? want to put it out there. I think lifestyle business is perfectly fine. And if you disagree with me, stop listening to my show. I don't care. It's like, it's fine. Yeah. It's a perfectly <laughs> valid way to live your life and to build a business that you love. Do it. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about what whether, you know, I, you could call it a lifestyle business, but you can definitely have options on amazing, very large scale outcomes with mm -hmm. what what looks like a lifestyle business. I, I think the really hard lesson is like, um, I think once you become a venture business, like what you think is that your whole job is growth, growth, growth. Um, but but it isn't because growth is never enough under that model. So if you and we've, we've asked potential investors this question, OK, next year, if you put all this money in next year, are you going to be happy if we grow 30 percent? No, no, 30 no, percent is, you know, that's wow. OK, what if we grow 60 percent year over year? Are you going to be happy? Oh, uh, I don't know about 60 percent. What if we grow 100 percent? Well, you know, that's good growth. But if we grow 250 percent, that's really good growth. But. And the answer is growth is a proxy for your next valuation and your next round. And so your real job is to improve your valuation. And again, this is not the same as improving your business. It's, it's different. The two can dovetail and coincide, but your job is, is not really growth. Growth is just a proxy for how you um, increase your valuation. And, and for us, and like we we think about like we want to run an efficient business. We want to make sure our customers are happy. We want to make sure that we can manufacture high quality at scale. And those are really hard businesses and they are worth 95% of all your effort day to day. And that remaining 5%, you know, my co-founder and I go for long walks and we have really difficult conversations about like, what does it mean to be capital constrained and when should we raise more money? And we do that all the time because we look around us and that's what's in the ecosystem. Those are the the competitive forces and those are hard questions. But to date, we've erred on the side of a little smaller, a little scrappier. And despite that, you know, 
Last year, we grew 60% year over year. And many would look at 60% and say, like, that's really extreme growth. And others would look at it and poo-poo it and say, like, oh, well, this business over here, they, yeah, they grew a thousand percent. And it's all, it's all relative. And um, this is a hard lesson, but it's like a personal lesson is um, at a certain point, you want to stop keeping score. And the only thing you want to worry about is what you do and the quality of that. And when you stop keeping score, I think you you end up focusing on really important, really hard problems and and making a ton of headway. Absolutely. Uh, this has been such a great episode so far. Uh, my, my final question for you is is one that we talked about in the pre-show, which is this kind of the, the build versus buy. And so I'm a nerd. Mm-hmm. I, I know the site. I, I believe the site's a pretty custom custom build. Um, I'm assuming kind of your history and software led you down that path, but you know, do you have any opinions on, uh, when to make that decision to go fully custom and and any of the kind of solutions out there in the ecosystem these days? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of use case specific. So, um, I'll give you, I'll give you an example, like checkout. Checkout is really hard to do really hard. And the folks at Shopify, they do a great, great job of it. Or, you know, the other folks at, uh, Bolt, they have a great checkout experience, but it depends on your use case. So like if you go to a vault or you go to a Shopify and you're like, look, we sell subscriptions and individual items. And by the way, when people buy gifts, they have to be able to send it to multiple recipients. And sometimes it's dozens of recipients and we need that support. And we need a custom promotional support where a discount can get you discount off the initial or it can get you a discount off the ongoing recharges and dot, 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 dot. And so when you start looking at those platforms, as your business tries to support more and more valuable use cases, they don't always fit anymore. And so we took this approach from the start, which was we're going to build our stuff until we realize it's not core to what we're doing, and then we're going to hand it off. And the areas that have remained core for us are we do have a custom checkout, right? We do have custom recharge engine that we built ourselves. We have a custom catalog because the products we manage, are they're not the same as a T-shirt. And um, we manage our supply chain through all that software. But we have identified places where we add no value. A great example is like shipping software. We had zero value trying to integrate with FedEx and USPS. And so we, we've always picked a partner there. And it's been, those have been great where we don't have to worry about writing a bunch of code and they take care of the use case completely. So for shipping, we use EasyPost. Another example is when we started, we had all these custom uh, lifecycle flows for customers and visitors for email. And so we wrote all the code and who gets what email and when do they get it and what happens if they convert and this and that. And we realized that there are platforms that do that better. So we, we migrated a couple of years ago to Clavio, and that puts all of the sort of power and strength in the hands of our marketing folks. And we don't have to write a lick of code to support it. It's all supported. And so that's an area where it's not within our wheelhouse. It doesn't add value. But when we turn to someone like Clavio, it adds it a ton of value and we're not writing code for the wrong reasons. So we try to kind of walk up a line between um, figuring out what's better done by a third party versus doing it in-house. And um, that's just how we've always operated for us. Like the, one of the key considerations is that uh, planning our product, sourcing our product, receiving our product, manufacturing our product, the product catalog 
how we display that, inventory, allocation and reservation against inventory, checkout and all of its use cases, and fulfillment and so on down the line. Those are all kind of one big integrated system. And I know that as we grow, for example, inventory might be the next thing that we kind of carve off and give to a third party because after a certain amount of revenue, you're not just talking about inventory, you're talking about finance. And so finance sees it a little different than we do. And um, so over time, we'll take different parts of our system and kind of carve it out to third parties. But I think if you're just getting started, remember, like e-commerce is two businesses. You have a digital business. And then you have a product business. And so I think if you're just getting started and you want to focus on the product, you can go a really long way with something like Shopify until you ever have to think about, well, are we going to do something custom? Is it already supported? Are there like businesses doing $100 million that use that functionality? And are we going to need something different? And the answer to that, if you're just getting started and focusing in on the actual product is you can probably get away with using third-party stuff for a long, long time. Or if it's the, at the heart of what you do, if you want to be a technology-oriented company, then, then it might be worth investing in it. Um, but always the rule is like, just do the minimum required to sell your product and get it in people's hands. And then you can make decisions as you grow. Yeah, that was, that was a fantastic way to put it. Um, was there anything I forgot to ask you that you think would resonate with our audience today? I would say, like, you asked a really good question. Is the way that you started eight years ago, can you do that today? And I, I think the only, the only caveat I would add is, um, I mean, some things are, are different and they're really important to note. Like the tools now that are available, they're much better and they enable much, much more than we had. Like if you wanted to do a referral campaign eight years ago, like you were writing some code or even the people who built businesses around referral campaigns, like they were brand new. Um, similarly, like Shopify was around, but it was still relatively new. Email providers were much more primitive than they are now. Sending SMSs is something that we wrote code to do and respond to. And now SMS is a whole category with companies raising hundreds of millions of, of dollars just for SMS functionality. So the, the tools now are much more powerful. But the flip side is that, especially after two years in the pandemic, where everyone who had previously done only, for example, retail or wholesale or manufacturing businesses, they all got their acts together. They all went online. And so if you looked at this Q4 kind of holiday peak, it was the first time in a really, really long time that e commerce was, for lack of a better term, materially more crowded than it's ever been. And so I think, you know, the pandemic has reoriented consumers to want even more product at home, but it's also reoriented companies who otherwise might not have had an online presence or sold direct to consumer to kind of get into that business quickly. Um, and so it is much more crowded than it has been um, previously. And that's, that's really important to acknowledge as well. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been an extremely valuable episode. Now, for the listeners that are curious about the product, where should they head? Oh, just go to beanbox.com. And um, if you're a first-time visitor, my guess is we'll show you a great offer either for a subscription or to just try our coffee. And uh, our hope is that you bring it to your home, you brew it in the morning, you have a better morning and then a better day. And that's what we're all about. Oh, absolutely. 
All right. I can't thank our guests enough for coming on the show and sharing their knowledge and journey with us. We've got a lot to think about and potentially add into our own business. You can find all the links in the show notes. Make sure you head over to honestecommerce.co to check out all of the other amazing content that we have. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review. And obviously, if you're thinking about growing your business, check out our agency at electriceye.io. Until next time.